Evergreen Exchange. We're here at the uh, SIC 2019 in Dallas, uh, put on by John Malden, and I'm happy to be here with one of the uh, the rock star speakers and friend of mine, Grant Williams. Grant, thanks for being on the Evergreen Exchange podcast. Mate, always a pleasure. I've been, I've been waiting for you to invite me. <laughs> well, you're number three on the list behind Louie and Dave, so that's pretty good company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's hard than I would have expected. <laughs> Tell listeners about your newsletter that you write, and then also about Real Vision, your, uh, your interview Wow, we're getting straight into the plug. Straight See, in. Did yeah, most yeah. people leave that till the end. No, this no. Is, this, I want to give you your flipping, platform before people. Hey, these pe- these people stop listening quick. So <laughs> if you don't get it in now, uh, all right. Well, that uh, my newsletter is called um, "Things That Make You Go Hmm." It's uh, it's just a, a kind of way for me to write about anything in the financial markets that I that I find interesting on any given week. I publish it twice a month and. There's really not much more to it than that. It's it's just stuff that I find interesting. Um, How do right people now, sign up? They see, see, I'm terrible at this plugging stuff. You're much better than me at it. Uh, well, look, if you go to ttmygh.com and, and, and take a look, it's everything you need to know. And if, you, uh, if you've got any more questions, you can email me uh, at grant at ttmygh.com. And the other the other project you mentioned there, Real Vision, is, um, you know, again, realvision.com is the easiest way to take a look at it, but it's... Uh, it's a, a, an online subscription-based financial TV station, and we, we, we interview some of the smartest minds in finance, some of them household names, and many of them not. And you know, the fascinating thing for me over the last five years we've been doing this is, is how many of the ones who are not are just supremely, supremely bright minds and have a really interesting perspective on stuff. So you know, I've, I've learned more in the last five years than I have in the previous 30 in this business, I would, I would say, from, from talking to these folks. So it's been, uh, it's been fantastic. So since we're down at uh, SIC and there's a lot of really, really interesting speakers here too, um, you've heard a bunch of the sessions. What's kind of stuck out to you? Who's stuck out and what ideas are kind of ones that are capturing your attention? You know, this conference is always fantastic. I mean, top to bottom, the speaker lineup is always just top notch. And so, you know, I, I, I sit in as many of the sessions as I can. Um, and, and honestly, none of them none of them have disappointed. I mean, David Rosenberg was fantastic as always. You know, he's he remains bearish and always has the data to back him back himself up, um, which I love. And, and I'm a big fan of Rosie's. You know, he was he was bullish when a lot of people weren't, and he turned bearish and he's copped a lot of flack for it. But you know, when you make an argument as cogent as he does with with that much data to back it up, it's really hard to to kind of poke holes in it. You know, we've had Felix Zulaf on. Uh, I was lucky enough to interview Felix on stage this morning. I mean, he is he's a legend in the industry. And, and when you hear him talk and you hear him think out loud, you can see why. I mean, the man has a, a rigor to his process and a, and a level of intelligence that is just so rare these days. And, and it's just a thrill to get a chance to speak to him again. I mean, you know, I've done it before for Real Vision and we did it live this time. But, you know, all the speakers, Louis was fantastic, uh, as he always is. He's, he's the most annoyingly smooth Frenchman you'll ever meet. I can't stand the guy, but I love him. But the one thing that's that's kind of stood out is the fact that the vast majority of people here are bearish. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've had that thrown at us on Real Vision, which is interesting. People say, oh, you know, you've, you've got so many bears, when you get some bulls on? But the interesting thing is that we don't go out to find bulls or bears. We go out to find smart people with experience and, and something to say. And, and John's the same with this conference. You know, they, they, they find top draw speakers. And then tell them, okay, come and tell us what you're thinking about. So, so for me, the value is in the fact that so many smart people are bearish. There's great value in that. Now, they could all be wrong. You know, someone asked a question on the panelists once. Said, you know, crowds tend to be wrong mm-hmm. uh, altogether. Mm-hmm. Does that does that concern you? Felix, you know, Felix, they asked a the question of Felix Zulaf this morning. But the you know the sheer 
weight of intellect behind the bears here and the amount of experience they have and the fact that they're across asset classes, across disciplines is something that I think everybody here needs and everyone listening to the podcast needs to needs to think about. You, you might not agree with them, that's fine, but at least take on board the fact that so many smart people are bearish and think, okay, does that challenge my, my bullish narrative? It's actually kind of stole a little bit of my thunder because I was going to go with, you know, I would, you know, if there was a genre to a, a type of movie to describe this this conference to me, I would pick horror show. Yeah, right. Uh, because yeah. you know whether it's talking about Kyle Bass talking about China has no rule of law. Why would you ever invest there? There's you know the leftward socialist populist yeah. movement that everyone's talking about. You were on a panel yesterday saying, "Is the euro going to be around in 2030?" Not a lot of optimism, and and it's sort of interesting what you were saying about the speakers. You said, "Oh, they have a lot of experience," and and I wonder. If some of it is a generational thing, because where we're from up in Seattle, I think there's a small company you've heard of up there called Amazon and another one. I'm called, familiar with them. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> and and there's there's but it is a becoming a not just a big tech scene. There's a there's a movement up there. There's a lot of tech. There's a lot of younger people coming there to work. And frankly, when I talk to people that are whether they're you know working at a tech company or they're running companies that are in their you know and they're in their 40s. I don't hear the same type of tone that I hear sure. here. Um, well, it, it's it's an interesting point, and I think if you talk to people who have spent their life in financial markets, then depending on how long they've been doing this and how many cycles they've seen, they they kind of know what to expect. Now, that's not to say it happens the way you expect it to, but you know this is a, a movie of sorts that the people who've been around for twenty five, thirty years have seen before. Only this time, it's not playing out exactly as they thought. And that's that's confusing a lot of people. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, if you're an entrepreneur, then what a marvelous time to be alive, right? Zero cost of capital. There's people throwing money at your left and right. And you don't even have to make money, right? <laughs> you don't have to build a profitable business. People will, will finance you because of that zero cost of capital. People lend money and, and invest in this stuff. So you know, both sides are, have a massively skewed perspective. You know, The entrepreneurs are growing up in an age that at any other time in history, they'd have been out of business, mm-hmm. right? 20, you know, 20 minutes after they opened the business. Today, they're, they're, they're thriving on paper. And the market practitioners are looking at things that ordinarily would have meant markets would have created by now, and it just hasn't happened. So, so everyone's kind of out of kilter. Do you think that when you work in this industry long enough, you get an, you know, you kind of get gun shy after just see, being through enough, you know, whether it's market crashes or, or economic recessions, that eventually it just gets harder to pull the trigger, and then you have the other the other end of the spectrum where you've never seen one, right? So yeah. you're like, oh, markets are, you know, stock market goes up on average nine percent a year, and and that you just bet on that in the long run, right? There's a little bit of the perspective of of the people that we hear talking here; they don't have as long of a time horizon. No. Do you agree with that? No, they don't. I mean, Felix made a great point this morning. He he looks at really long term demographic trends to build his overall framework. And then within those demographic trends, he tries to overlay the business cycle. But if you want to invest along demographic trend lines, you're investing for 40, 50 years. And people don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, some people do. Tony Deaton, the guy that I interviewed uh, for Real Vision. And, and for anyone listening, we, we actually put this video up on YouTube. And this I will plug uh, with abandon. Uh, if you search for Tony Deaton, D-E-D-E-N, you'll find his interview with me. And now it's two and a half hours long. But I defy anybody to put it on uh, who's serious about investing and not wish that it was longer once they finished it. It's an extraordinary conversation. Uh, and he, you know, he talks about this exact same thing, talks about people being through and, and, and building real businesses with real cash flow. And, and you don't see that anymore. And so you know, for me, 
the time you come into this industry dictates mm. how you view it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I started in the business right before the 87 crash. So, you know, within two years of being in the business, I saw the market fall 22% in a day. So I know that can happen. Mm. So I'm cognizant that, that I have seen that and I've, and I've lived through it. So I'm very aware of that. If, if you came into the industry 10 years ago, you've just seen a market that goes mm-hmm. up. You, can't, you couldn't contemplate a market mm-hmm. that fell 22% in a day. So I, th- I, think, I think you're right. I think uh, the people that are, are you know, under 30 um, have a very skewed uh, have a very skewed perspective. And look, that may serve them very well. I, I remember, um, I think it was Stan Druckerman telling the story of, uh, of how he came into the business at the, 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 the low of the bear market in the 80s. And the, I forget the shop he was working for, but they fired all the traders and put this young kid in charge of it, which was a, it seemed like a ballsy thing to do. And Stan asked him and said, what do you put me in charge for? And the guy said, well, you're not battle scarred. You haven't been mm. through this grinding bear market. You're full of hope, full of optimism. Mm. You won't be gun shy. So I think, I think it is important the time you come into these markets. And, and if you get a long trending bull market like we've had, it's great. But if you come in at a period of maximum optimism now and you're in for two years and the market gets cut in half, it will color your judgment and the way you act forever. Certainly the vintage of, of the investor does play a role. And, and you, you just mentioned Stan Drunkenmiller. And that was it's a it's a great segue to a question that I've been wanting to ask you about people you've interviewed. You've been on the road for Real Vision, going out interviewing big names and and, and unknown names, and you said that you find them you know equally fascinating. Yeah. And who are some people that have stuck out in your mind where you're just like, wow, this this guy's a unique thinker. Oh, man, there's so many of them. I mean, that that interview with Tony Deaton was was profound. And everywhere I go in the world, you know, people ask me about it. Uh, I, I had a conversation with a guy who without any word of exaggeration, had, had tears rolling down his cheeks as he was telling me this a story of what that interview meant to him and, and how it changed his life. But, you know, Felix Zulaf was another one that people always want to talk about. And look, I, I, I'll, I'll say it in front of you, your dad, uh, the piece I did with him was exceptional. And, and I, you know, I, I came to, to Bellevue to talk to David and there were, there, were, there were certain things that I really wanted to talk to him about that he and I talked about privately in the past. And I was hoping that I'd be able to share the way he sees the world and the way he thinks about the sort of client um, manager relationship. And he did, he was sick as a dog, bless him, and he, and he, and he soldiered on. But he did such a great job of, of explaining that dynamic, which is a really complicated but important dynamic. And that's another one that people, people really found that to be fascinating because no one takes the time to talk about this stuff anymore, right? But they, they, all want to, they all want to know what stock's going up and mm-hmm. they all want to know where they should invest. But understanding how the relationship between a client and a manager has changed, this sounds like a plug for Evergreen, I just realized as I'm listening to myself, I'm thinking people are going to think I'm some sort of stooge, but it's not. You know, this is, this, this, I'm just saying this is, as it comes to me. But, but that, that relationship is so important and, and to understand how it's changed over the last 10, 20 years is important for people to understand because if you can't find someone that you can trust to do the right thing at inflection points, it, it's a big problem. Uh, and so, you know, other people, there was a, a, a guy I met in, in Australia called Daniel Want, uh, that's W-A-N-T, and people should, should Google him. He runs a company called Prerequisite Asset Management down in Brisbane. It's a tiny little firm and he's a young guy and I, I sat down to talk to him we hadn't met. We'd corresponded. A friend of mine had sent me some of his writing, and uh, you know, it, it, it was like sitting there with a with a sixteen year old kid talking like an eighty year old. It was it was extraordinary. I mean, I didn't expect this, and so I've been I've been so lucky. I've found so many um, so many people to talk to. As I said, some of them who are household names, and and they've all been incredibly generous with their time and 
<clears throat> incredibly free with sharing their thoughts and their experience. And uh, you know, I, I think there's something you have to learn from everybody if you take the time to listen and you let them talk about the things they think are important instead of instead of trying to direct the conversation to where you think is important because mm-hmm. they'll answer they'll answer you if you ask them a question say hey I think this is important what do you think about it? they'll they'll give you their opinion but if you say you know what do you, what do you think is important mm-hmm. that's where that's where you'll get the really good stuff so it's uh, it's a privilege for me to do these interviews and uh, you know I've loved every single one of them speaking of really important um, you have a really important event coming up in your life after this trip you're headed to Ireland tell the I listeners am. about uh yeah, I'm going to play golf. You're going to go play golf? <laughs> I'm, uh, no, I'm going to, to Ireland for the christening of my first grandchild. Uh, Grant Williams is a god, a grandfather. Yes, Can you believe is. you're saying that out loud or no, that I'm saying it? Hey, I embrace it. I am a grandfather. I am a, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a glamorous grandfather, but I'm a grandfather nonetheless. I'm, you don't uh, know yet. And No, she's adorable. Uh, she's absolutely adorable. I, I was unprepared for what it would feel like. I have the to say. gravity has struck you. No, not the gravity. It's not even that. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like a burden. It doesn't feel like I'm getting old. It's just... It's just, you know, she's just a little bundle of joy, which is, uh, it's fantastic to have that in your life. And you, I see you brought your golf club, so you're going to play in Ireland. Is that right? Yes. And and have you played golf recently? Oh, man, you're going to hate me for this. I've, I've played twice recently. Uh, once uh, at Augusta National and once at Sunningdale. Oh, where, where, where is that? Sunningdale. And what, Augusta, Sunningdale, it's in England. Augusta what? <laughs> well, yeah, once at Augusta National Jeez, and then once at Sunningdale. it be Grant Williams. Golf in Ireland, Augusta, world traveler. What can I tell you? I'm a grandfather. Very, very lucky, lucky grandfather. When you talk about traveling a lot, where's your favorite place to travel? When you're like, I'm going to this country, you're like, this uh, you is know great. what? Listen, my favorite place in the entire world is Charleston, South Carolina, which always catches a lot of people off guard. But it is there's something about that place. It, it's it, there's something magical about it, and, and every time I go there, I just I just love it. It's changed in the 25 years I've been going there. Um, but it's been getting better and better, and the, the food culture there is amazing, and the you know the weather's great, and the people are, are fabulous. Um, so I love going there. But I, you know, I I love to travel. Uh, it's exhausting at times, but I just came back from Hong Kong and Singapore, both places I've lived, and so I've got friends there. So it's great to see them. But you know, I spent a lot of happy years in Australia, which is a fantastic country, and the U.S. obviously. So I, I, I you know, I, I don't mind where I go. I'll even go to Scotland if the, if the weather's nice because there's some great golf up there too. Well, you mentioned Australia um, as a place that you like to visit, but it's definitely not a place that you'd invest after the, the presentation that you gave this morning. Tell yeah. listeners about the outlook <clears throat> for the Australian economy. Well, yeah, I I, 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 I sat at the opening remarks of the conference and, uh, and John, John Holden, got, I made a point of, of, of mentioning that there were 39 Australians here. It was the biggest overseas contingent um, who'd ever come and I, I was sitting at the back and I, I said to the person next to me he said you know this is going to go one or two ways in a couple of days because I'm going to tell them their country's about to fall into the ocean but God bless them Aussies they're, 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 they're good value and they, and they took it in the spirit it was intended I, 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 I just spent some time talking about the housing market and the economy which, which are intrinsically linked together um, and you know we've, we've got this negative feedback loop where the housing market is coming under pressure uh, and we can talk about why if you like if you want to go into the whole thing um, but also the economy on the back of China uh, slowing down is also starting to struggle and and the way I look at it either the economy could slow down and trigger uh, a meltdown in the housing market as unemployment rises and people can't pay their mortgages or the housing market could slow down as it's doing now um, for various fascinating reasons 
and that could uh, tip the country into recession. So it, it's uh, how could this? Ha- I mean, it sounds stupid, but how could this happen when you just watched the exact same thing happen in the United States as a as a preview? How could you find yourself as a country having the same types of problems, lax lending standards? Well, you know, I, I honestly. For my money, I'd be surprised if you didn't find that in a country. Because look, this is human nature, right? And Charlie Munger once said, "Show me the incentives, and I'll show you the outcome." And and the incentives are clear, right? I mean, it's the same incentives that we saw in the U.S. Um, you know, sell, 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 um, stuff anything you can into anybody, and take your commission, and, and everybody wins because because the price of houses keeps going up, so nobody gets hurt, uh, and that's great until it stops working, and so. You know, as bad as things were in, in the US, when you look at, um, you overlay the sort of house price charts of Australia to the US, I mean, it's, uh, when I put that chart mm-hmm. up, this morning, I showed the US, and then I put Australia, and I heard some gasps in the room oh, yeah, of people that hadn't stark. seen those charts before. I mean, it's extraordinary. And so the overvaluation in Australia dwarfs that we, we mm-hmm. saw in the US. And the big difference uh, here is that, you know, in the US, mortgage debt is non-recourse, whereas in Australia, these are all recourse loans. And so people have to pay their mortgage. And consequently, when the house price stops going up and starts going down and people start losing jobs, you know, it has an immediate effect on consumer spending. I put a chart up of discretionary spending versus essential spending, and they're both going opposite directions the wrong way and have been for you know, a decade now. You know, the consumer is strapped. Wages have stagnated, going sideways. You know, savings have plummeted from 11% of income to 3% of income in a decade. So you know, everything's been kind of slowly lining up but the house prices have kept going up so so that's that's been enough for people to say well it doesn't matter mm-hmm. but um, you know what happened we, we we finally had a catalyst for this thing which is really interesting the, the, the opposition party in parliament through a whole set of circumstances which are which are comically Australian um, but we won't need to go into here just google Barnaby Joyce if you don't <laughs> if you want to find out what happened <laughs> but the the opposition had a, had a, an unexpected majority in Parliament for a few months, and they used it to force this Royal Commission through because they realised that housing affordability was a big a master nail they flagged to in the election campaign, and, and they and they used this this sudden majority to push through the Royal Commission. Now the Royal Commission is essentially like a public inquiry, a Senate inquiry, a congressional inquiry, with unlimited powers of subpoena. And so they 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 put this thing together. They they put in a very senior High Court judge um, to run it, and. He could subpoena every document, every banking executive, and you know, what he found was extraordinary. It was, and it's exactly the same as we saw in the US. It's no doc loans, it's liar loans, it's it's uh, you know, misleading sales practices. It's, it's everything we saw in the US, everything, mm-hmm. including um, masses of interest-only loans, um, which are the same as arms in the US, uh, which are now starting to convert to principal and interest. And so it's exactly the same. Only, as I said, this is recourse debt, and the valuations are so, so much, much higher, higher than they yeah. were in the U.S. And the economy, uh, which has been wholly dependent on China, is is struggling. And um, you know, a good friend of mine, who's a fantastic analyst down in Australia, Gerard Minak, gave us an interview on Real Vision recently. Actually, while I was putting this together, and I and I watched this interview, I, I didn't have the good fortune to interview Gerard, but I watched this, and he was talking a lot about this stuff. And you know, and I called him and said, look. I need some of your charts for this presentation because they really helped me tell this story. But he said in there, you know, he said, look, he doesn't make invest, uh, a recession his base case right now. Mm-hmm. He said, but we're a couple of months of bad data away from, from investors being forced to make the recession their base case. Now, if that is your base case in Australia, 
Gerald's words were, this will be world's best practice. And by that he means this will be the mother of all recessions. They've gone almost 30 years without one. Mm. And so you talk about people's time in the industry. These are people who've never had to pay a mortgage when they've lost their job, mm-hmm. right? So um, the, the, the ramifications are potentially enormous in Australia. And I, I, to me, it's just it, being short the Australian dollar, being uh, you know long Australian government bonds, being short some of consumer stocks. These are, How about the banks? Short the banks. Well, the, the banks will ultimately be where the rubber meets the road, but you're probably going to see, I think, um, the nationalization of them. Ultimately, they're too big to fail. There's, there's four Aussie banks uh, that have 80% of the, of the loans in Australia, and 70% of their books are, are residential mortgages. I mean, it's every way you slice this thing, it, it's it, you'd say this sounds like a horror show. It is a horror show. Um, but uh, but a really good friend of mine, Michael Schneider, um, has set up um, a fund. It's called the Firebell Australia Macro Fund to try and capture this trade. Uh, and Michael's one of the smartest guys I know. And when he, he walks you through this, I mean, there, there are some complicated trade structures to put in place. But it, it's it's an incredibly asymmetric payoff if mm-hmm. this thing happens. Mm-hmm. And, and to look at the economy, to look at the market, to look at the housing market and expect that if you if you put this trade on to the short side, the, the things that would have to happen for you to be wrong to any major extent would be, I think Louis called it the, the Alice in Wonderland scenario. He, sure. he wanted it to be God looks, but he couldn't find a picture. <laughs> um, so it's just, it's, it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating country and it's a fascinating trade. Right you mentioned in part of your, your concerns over the housing bubble in Australia, a slowdown coming in China. And China has been talked about a lot here because of obviously the, the recent uh, tariff and, yep. and trade wars that are, that are going on. Talk a little bit about um, not maybe China's impact on Australia, but just how you see China and its role in in, in the the investors, uh, the impact they could play on investors' portfolios who are invested, you know, not just domestically in the U.S. What's been interesting about China? We had a great panel on China. Louis was on it um, along with Carl Bass, um, both of whom have very well stated opinions, contrary opinions on mm-hmm. China. And we had a good friend of mine, um, Simon Hunt, on there as well, who who uh, spends a lot of time on the ground in China, and he is very, very bullish. And that's the interesting thing about China. These are three guys who I respect tremendously. They all have wildly differing opinions. And that's the problem with China. It's really tough to get a good sense. You you kind of, unless you're prepared to go to China and really do the work yourself, you've got to trust somebody else's figures. I don't think you can trust the government's figures. We can write those off. So you have to find independent researchers who give you figures that you feel are, are true. And you can find really smart independent researchers that have completely diametrically opposed views. So, so for me, you know, I, I, I look at it from a much bigger picture. I look at what the, even the, the government figures have been doing, you know, and, and to my mind, they, they are definitely incentivized to massage the figures to make them as look as good as possible within the realms of belief. And so if they're telling you that, GDP growth is 5.6%. I mean, I'm being skeptical to think that's the best they can get away with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but it's still markedly lower than what they no, were No, they absolutely. Were no, that's my point. So does that mean that some of the guys are right and it's really three? Mm-hmm. Because if it is three, Australia's toast, uh, as are a lot of exporting. Brazil's going to face major problems. If it really is three, but we have this kind of don't ask, don't tell situation with China where people are invested and you know, as long as you tell me it's six, and I 
don't have someone wave a piece of paper in my face that proves it's three. I can invest as if it is six because I know everyone else is going to invest as if it's six and mm. it's fine. You know, once you pull the rug out of these things and people have to confront the fact, not necessarily that it is three, but, you know, Ben Hunt writes about this a lot, this common knowledge game. But once you think everybody else knows it's three, then you have to do something about it. So, you know, I don't think we're ever going to know the real mm-hmm. truth about whether China's doing well or poorly. But I think any country that's done what it's done and, and financed it with this massive credit expansion is going to face problems somewhere down the road. So let's say that uh, Real Vision sells and Grant Williams gets handed a check for $50 million. <laughs> That'd be nice. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> okay. Getting away from sort of theoretical, practically, what would you do with that money? How would you invest it? Would you would you look around the world and say, there's nothing I want to invest in, so I'm going to buy gold? I've heard from time to time that you like gold a little bit. Uh, look, I do. I do. I think everyone should should own some gold. I mean, I, I, I don't get caught up in the price moves. It's not it's not a trading vehicle for me. I, I'm, ne- I'm never going to try and buy the 1200 to sell it at 1300 I just think it's, it's an allocation you should have. But you... You're talking to Felix this morning. It's interesting. You know, he he was saying this morning. I think he's absolutely right. He said that the uh, you know the trend to passive is coming to an end. He thinks it's he thinks it's done, and it's time to be a market timer once again. And that's a very difficult skill to have. And if you're going to be a market timer, you need to be watching the markets the whole time. You know, you need to be able to sit there and pay attention because at these turning points they turn fast and if you you know you 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 you're trying to trade the markets yourself and you put positions on and then you get drunk one night Go and golf at sleep Augusta. through the yeah, whatever you know you could be you could be stopped out in a heartbeat so so for me at this point you know I think we've seen a lot of um, a lot of active managers uh, have had terrible results and they've seen massive outflows and generally speaking whenever you see that it means the bottoms either there or thereabouts. So I, I think you're going to see people lose money in passive structures, and you're going to see them looking for active managers again. And, and for me, unless you are going to manage your own money yourself as a full-time job, it's about finding a manager who can look after it for you, who you understand their philosophy, and it's and it's aligned with yours. Yeah, you know, look, for me, the dream is to find a manager who I can give them some money to, and know that I never have to call them because at the end of the day. I know that if they underperform, it's not because they've made a dumb mistake. I understand their philosophy. And this was, this was you know, look, frankly, your dad would be one of those guys. That's why I wanted to have that conversation with him for Real Vision. Because, you know, I know that with your dad, I, I, I wouldn't need to call him. And the, the returns would come in. And if he outperformed, great. And if he underperformed, I know it's not because he's done anything dumb. It's because sometimes you underperform. That's just the way of the world. But I think what this last decade has done has made everybody expect to outperform, has made everybody expect superior performance, and and more importantly, either complain or switch managers when they don't get it, uh, to chase the you know the last guy who had the, the big outperformance last year, which is mm-hmm. you know a, a catastrophically foolish thing to do in the long run. Um, you know my. Um, my, my great friend and, and former boss, Steve Diggle, uh, who runs Volpez Investment Management in Singapore, you know, he told me a story once when, when he had a, a big volatility fund and they had uh, allocators coming in and he had, so had this young guy come in and you know, he had the fancy suit on and the handkerchief and the, you know, the blue suit and the brown shoes and the slick back hair and everything. And he, and he you know, kind of puffed his chest out and said to Steve, you know, what we do every year, we, we, uh, we take money away from our worst five performing funds and we give it to our best five performing funds. And Steve, bless him, I'm sure the guy wasn't expecting this, just looked at him and said, you know, that could be the most stupid thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and this guy, for having, having, I've no doubt had hundreds of meetings with people that are desperate to get money allocated to them, just, it just completely took him out. Why would you do that? 
It's just the dumbest thing you could do. It's so funny. It reminds me of the story. We had a wholesaler come in one day to Evergreen. And, and as you know, we, we build portfolios internally, so we don't buy mutual funds. But a friend of mine asked me to take the meeting. So I sat down with the wholesaler. Sure, tell me your pitch. Just we don't really buy funds, but I'll listen. And he sits down and he pulls out his, his stack of paper. And then he says, you know, we've been around for 30 years. You know, we're really good. Here's our, you know, we, do, we have this new growth fund. It's doing wonderfully. We have this value fund. We have this blah, blah, blah fund. And I'm like do you have any funds that haven't done well? He goes, yeah, I do. And I'm like, can you find that? Can you find that fact sheet in your briefcase? And he's like, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm dead serious. Reaches down into his briefcase. And I, I kid you not, he pulled it out and it was wrinkled up and he had to straighten it and flatten it on the desk. He's apologizing. You know, I just never thought anyone would want to see this one. So to your point, I mean, you show me the incentives and no one's pitching the... the, no. the no, but look, we all, you know, the, the, the thing that's remarkable about this is we all know that failure is part of life and we all know, Christ, we all know that failure is a big part of investing. You know, if, if the guys who make six out of 10 bets right are going to do fantastically over the long run. So it's interesting that people's mindset is always this way. It's like if you, if I don't outperform all the time, there's something wrong. I mean, it's, it's I guess that's, that's how people have been conditioned. And it's even more interesting to me because I can't tell you how many times we sit down with clients and we say, what's your return target? And they say, I'd like to make like eight or nine percent. You sit down, you start going through when do you want to retire? How much money would you like to have? What would you like to leave to your kids? It turns out that the return needed to meet all their investment goals is five, five percent. And you're like, why are you trying to earn nine? They're just like, I don't know, nine kind of sounded good. And it's like, but that's like double the risk. Right. But but it is very interesting the way that that people think talk. I'll go to a couple of your favorite topics. Um, how about Tesla? As a, <laughs> my wife doesn't listen to this, so you can feel free to right. unleash because right. it's it's her favorite car that she's ever owned, but, right. but she doesn't hey, listen. Hey, so listen, a lot of people say the same thing. A lot of people, they're all over Twitter. You can find them on there. They, they, they're in love with this car. In fact, a lot of them will post and say, Elon, greatest car I've ever driven. Uh, but I can't get hold of the service center and the roof's leaking and the wheel fell off and the engine, but a great car and thanks for saving the world. Yeah, it, it, this is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen in 35 years in this business. It's an absolute coming together of an era. This is, it's, this is malinvestment, it's zero cost of capital, it's celebrity culture, it's corporate mm-hmm. fraud, it's the, it's the green revolution. I, I mean, it, this is extraordinary to me. Um, and you know, I'll state quite equivocally. I think this thing is a is a busted flush. I think it's more likely than not fraud, and I think it goes, if not to zero, then someone's going to buy it for pennies on the dollar, and and executives are going to go to jail. I could be proven wrong, and I'm I'm willing to be proven wrong. But you know, they're, they're more important to me than the company is actually the uh, the community on Twitter that has coalesced around this, and and mm. and. I think this has ramifications for the entire financial industry uh, going forward, and, and I'll explain why. Because I, I think, actually, think this is really important. Um, there's a there's a community on Twitter called Tesla Q, and and it's it's uh, you know, a dollar sign or hashtag TSLAQ. And the reason that's there is because when a stock gets delisted, um, it gets a Q symbol. If it's if it goes bankrupt, they get, they stick a Q symbol on the end. So it kind of started off as a tongue in cheek thing, but it's now it's now grown into an online community, and. It's been characterized as you know a group of evil short sellers, as it always happens, right? I mean, I've known a lot of short sellers in my career. Um, I've done a lot of short selling in my career, and and short sellers, for the most part, I'm not saying they're all the same, are some of the finest investors I've met, some of the most principled individuals I've met. Um, but they get painted with this 
evil short seller brush that they're just trying to make money and make companies fail. The simple truth is, if you're a good company doing a good job and executing and a short seller, even if they put you in those short stocks and try to get the stock down, it ain't going to work, right? But this community is different. And, and what's happened here is you've got people who are accountants and auditors and rocket scientists and hedge fund managers and people who've run big car production lines. And I mean, it's extraordinary, the brain power in this community. And, and what's coalesced and what's all brought them all together is that at some point in this story, Elon Musk has stepped into their world that they have built a career around or built a life around, whether it's academia or whether it's, it's uh, you know, out in, in, in the world of business. And he's made some bold pronouncement that they weren't even paying attention to Tesla. And they've just gone, well, hang on, that's just a lie. You, you can't do that. You know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people. We made a, a documentary about this for Real Vision, just a, a, you know, a 30-minute documentary, and trying to wrap all the threads of this thing was impossible. But through that, I've spoken to all kinds of people whose resumes are ridiculous. I mean, the, the credentials are, are frightening. And you know, when you talk to tunneling engineers about what he's saying the boring company's going to mm-hmm. do, and they say, well, that... that He'll never do that. That that just is not physically. You know, how does this guy think he is better than all the engineers who spent a hundred years since they dug the first tunnel perfecting this? You know, I've I've seen CFAs pick the balance sheet apart. I've, I mean, it's extraordinary. And every way you look at this thing, up and down, the narrative that's being sold to the public is demonstrably questionable. Well, let's let's be generous and say it's questionable. But why I think this is important is that. What I think you're going to find when, when this story plays out fully, uh, and, and I expect that to end with, with Tesla going bankrupt, people will look back on this Tesla Q community and what they were saying all the way through this story. Once it emerges what happened, and they're going to say, you know what, these guys had this all along. This is exactly what they said was going on, and, and the company was saying something different. But as it turned out, they were dead right. And I think what we're seeing here is, in effect something like Enron being live blogged and picked apart. Hmm. Now, we, no one saw Enron coming, apart from you know, David Tice, a mutual friend of ours is here at the conference. Tice saw it coming. Jim Chaynor saw it coming. A few people did. But this is happening in live time. And because of the, the advent of Twitter, there is now a medium by which people can crowdsource research, share that information, and, and build, quite frankly, the single best body of research I've ever seen on a stock in my life. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary the lengths people are going to. And I'll tell you this, because I've spoken to a lot of them. This is not about the money. These guys are angry that someone is torching billions of dollars. They're angry that the um, guys who are criticizing them are essentially cultists, fanboys that just believe Elon can do no wrong. And they started off being feeling bad for the people who were going to lose money being long the shares, because a lot of them were just young, idealist guys who you know, wanted to support someone trying to change the world, which is great, right? And, and these guys are not anti-electric vehicles at all. A lot of them have bought Chevy Volts, right? And a lot of them are waiting to buy the new Porsche Taycan, right? These, these are not anti-EV guys. Mm-hmm. But they see what they believe to be the biggest corporate fraud of all time taking place not only in our times, but with a guy who's splashed all over the front page of every newspaper every time he says something. And people are going to lose a lot of money. And these are people who 
don't understand finance, right? The bulls are not financial background people for the most part. They are young. They, you know, Robin Hood, there's, there's thousands of holders of Tesla. So funny you say this because I was going to say that, you know, you could say that this is the first, you know, major company that's going to blow up that has a, a crowdsourced live blog all the way charting it. Yeah. And yet at the same time, what I think is fascinating about it is he's using every tool in the current modern playbook to build the company, whether that's target millennials who are who like the idea yep. of green vehicles, whether that's use social media, whether that's be cool, go on Joe Rogan and smoke pot. I mean, he's using every every trick in the playbook that I think is, it's it's a yeah. fascinating sh you know showdown between. It really is. But but we're, we're now getting to the point where the catalyst again, like Australia, that they're starting to occur. You know, they raised some money recently. Mm -hmm. The stock had a bounce, but it's it's given most of it back. Um, and you know, a year ago, the, the bears were talking about you know when the when the Jaguar I Pace comes, when the Audi e-tron comes, when the uh, Porsche Taycan comes, they're going to eat Tesla's lunch. And that was a year ago. And people were saying, you're out of your minds, they'll be crappy, Tesla's the greatest car ever. Well, guess what? The sales are here, and these are real cars built by real automobile manufacturers with decades of experience that know how to build a car and didn't rush to, to take on Tesla. They took the time to build these cars properly. And sure enough, the sales numbers are coming through, and they're, and they're eating Tesla's lunch. And you know, and I think if Elon had stuck to making a $120,000 luxury plaything for, for, for wealthy people who wanted an electric car but wanted a cool one, he did I'm fine. It was mm -hmm. this, this idea that I'm going to borrow billions of dollars of investors' money and build a mass market car, which plenty of people would have told you who have experienced such things, you can't do that for 35 grand. It's just not doable. It's a great, it's a great aim to have, but it's not doable. But he's doubled down every time. He's doubled down on these lies, and, and they're starting to unravel, as is he, by the look of things. It, it is absolutely fascinating. Another topic that, that I, I think that you like to... I, I, I've followed and, and you've mentioned in the past is the mismeasure of inflation. Yeah. You think that it's undermeasured. And, and so so to somebody like me, I look at the world and I see it different. But I'm certainly I'm certainly interested to, to, to hear your persuasive argument on the on the flip side, because I think about it like I look at the phone that's sitting next to us on the table and I see a camera that was better than ever before, a family scrapbook that expands. I see uh, Internet that comes faster than ever before. It's an email tool. It's a work tool. You can watch movies on it. It's your music device. I mean, there's so much. And, and by the way, every time a new one comes out, it's faster and it's cheaper. And and I look at something like that and I'm like, well, that was cheaper. Is it? When was the last time the iPhone got cheaper? Okay, the same, not not more expensive. I don't know. I I, I think the last three or four iPhone models have been more expensive. But I, I I'm not 100 percent sure on that. You you can challenge me on it, but I, but you would certainly agree that that what you can do from a phone now versus 10 years ago is is truly light and day. I, I would, but what I would say to you is, I bought a phone and I needed a phone. And it happened to have a camera in it, and it happened to have all these other things. It, great. Okay, fantastic. Would I have gone out and bought an email machine or another camera and carried all those things around me? Probably not. I might have bought a camera. But if there's anybody listening to this who's, who thinks it's cheaper to live now than it was last year, never mind six years ago or five years ago, if, they, if anyone out there thinks that their true cost of living is going up 1.5%, then 
email us, please, because I, I, I want to go and live there, uh, and and I'll retire there really, really happy. It's, it's just not happening, right? But it, but it doesn't always matter if prices are going up, right? It's it, there's also the effect of, of what are, what are you getting out of the good, right? Milk, I think it's a flawed argument. This hedonic adjustment. You don't nonsense. agree with that? I mean, I no, agree. I Milk is more money tomorrow than or today than yesterday. I get that. That seems like inflation. But when I'm getting something more for for the same cost, that seems like there should be an adjustment for that. No, I disagree. I disagree. This this idea that. Um, Hey, you know, you know that computer you're buying. Um, well, yeah, it was a thousand dollars last year. It's twelve hundred this year. That's a twenty percent increase. But the same stuff in it now would have cost you two grand last year. Well, you, you know what? You wouldn't have bought a two grand computer last year. Well, you wouldn't have. You went out and bought a thousand dollar computer because that's what you were going to afford. So I, I think telling people, hey, you've got a great deal here. Therefore, we're going to lower the numbers. I, I just think that's nonsense. Yeah, I, I, look, I get what they're doing there, but if you look at every single adjustment that's ever been made to the CPI benchmark, if you can find one that resulted in the number going up, it, yeah, then come show me where it was. Because the, these numbers are, these adjustments are made to bring the number down. And whoever, I think the hedonics adjustments came in during Bill Clinton's term. And it's remarkable that that whole idea that, hey, you've got five grand's worth of value here for something that would have cost you, you know, whatever, seven last year. I wouldn't have spent seven on it. So, I don't know, for, for people who are trying to live day to day, it's not about the value they get, it's, it's about what they have to spend to live that life. And what you get for it is great, but if you're having to spend more on food and the packaging's getting bigger and there's less food in there and the fact that companies are using what my friend Pippa Malmgren calls shrinkflation, you know, the, the, the same size packet sure. but 20% less info. Is the, the reason, that the fact that they're trying to hide this from people by not making the packaging smaller and making it obvious that you're getting less should tell you all you need to know. People people wouldn't buy this stuff if they thought they were getting less. So Woody Brock said said something today that I'd be curious to get your opinion on. He said, okay, let's take let's take the average forget middle class American, but the average poor American. And and you say, would they rather go back twenty years in time or would they rather live today? And he said he doesn't think you could find anybody that would say I'd rather go back twenty years. Uh, well, you're asking the wrong age group, I guess. I, I didn't see Woody's, Woody's presentation, unfortunately. I, I, I was uh, I was out back, but um, he was making the point that the, the, the living standards are are so much better. Yeah, okay. I mean, well, look, yes, but I mean, look, depending on how you define living standards, if having a phone like that is living standards, well, there are now 663,000 homeless people in the United States. There, there were nowhere near that many ten years ago. And if you gave them a phone. Would that make their life better? No, it wouldn't. But sure. they can't afford to have a home. So I, I, look, you, you can. There's always there's always an argument with inflation. You can always come at it from a different way. And and, and I, I I understand the reasoning for both sides. I do. But for me, um, when I think of inflation, you try and boil it down to something real world that you can you can understand at a personal level. It's how much money do I have left over when I've brought my salary home and paid my bills. Hmm. Yeah, you know, and and. If, if you want to include discretionary spending, it's not the splurges. It's the, you know, I, I want to take my wife out for a meal once a week or whatever it is, right? That's not a necessity, but it's, it's, an, it's a luxury that you should be able to afford to do. And, and I think the vast majority of people will find that that number is going down. And so I think when you look around the world at, at um, populism, and, you know, Louis made this point beautifully yesterday when he, when he gave his speech, uh, and I agree with him 100%, this, this, this populist uprising around the world has more to do with inflation and has more to do with people just feeling stressed because they, 
they find that they, they they don't have much money left over, or they are struggling to pay a mortgage, or you know they can't buy the groceries they want to buy. Because everywhere you look, you know, inflation keeps going up, and even if we're generous and we use the, the official figures, wages are not keeping pace. Uh, if you if you're not generous and you take shadow stats, for example, you want to take some some alternative figures that that still use the same method for calculating inflation as they did before all these adjustments. You know, inflation's going up six, seven percent, and wages aren't keeping keeping pace. It doesn't take many years of that happening before people do feel the stress. So, you know, I think the the inflation numbers, it is back to Charlie Munger. Show me incentives to show the outcome. The, the government is incentivized because of all the cola payments and everything linked to inflation to make sure that number is as low as possible, uh, and that's their incentive. So, there's the outcome. I think the question that I want to I want to kind of wrap it up with, but it's a it's a big one. And, and like you said, I, I'll sort of let you go wherever you want with it. But I think, you know, when you look at probably the most disturbing topic that we've heard here is a return or a departure from from capitalism. Yeah. And right now, it seems from a lot of the things that have been said here that capitalism's taking the blame for things. The wealth gap, it's capitalism's fault. Everything is sort of being blamed on, it's a broken system. And and I guess I'd like to hear you weigh in on, yes, I mean, the economy's changing and, and, and the world's changing. And I always have, have, have argued with my dad that it's a pendulum, it swings. You know, when Trump won, I was like, guess what's gonna happen left? It's gonna swing back to yep. the left. And, and he says, no, it can become, the pendulum swings too far and then it breaks. And so I'd be curious to hear how you view, you know, you, you, have, you spend a lot of time in Europe, you see what's going on there. How, do, you, do you think that we're gonna, become more socialistic permanently? Or is this just something, how do you see the wealth gap and all those things? It's a big question, but. No, no, look, it is. Um, and and I think a, a lot of the accusations being thrown at capitalism have merit. They really do. But, you know, as someone, someone said, I think it might have been Jim Grant, someone said, you know, you know, what do you think about capitalism? And he said, well, maybe we should try it. And I, and I think that's exactly right, because what we have is not capitalism, right? Capitalism involves a bust part of the cycle. It involves bankruptcies. It involves letting companies that aren't efficient and, and, and don't produce profits, they go bust. It's simple. We haven't had that for 10 years. You know, we have crony capitalism. We have, we've had a decade of, of easy money. And, if, and if, you, if you look at what's happened, you know, when people talk about capitalism failing, they're, they're largely talking about the, the wealth divide, right, between the rich and mm-hmm. the poor. And of course, if you if you make money cheap in a response to a crisis, well, guess where it goes, right? It, it goes to people who don't need it, but they have assets and they and they have access to it. And then what do they do? They use it to buy assets, and asset prices go up. You know, we've seen massive inflation in asset prices. Um, whether you want to call the assets the stock market or real estate or you know the hundred and ten million dollar money that sold this week, mm-hmm. what we have is is inflation in things you things you need and. This idea that capitalism is under threat from the left, I, I, you know, I think the U.S. is hopefully is not ready for socialism yet. I mean, I think in, in principle this is a it's a it's a center right country, and I think it would take something more than this to change that. Having said that, my my fear is that having watched um, AOC and having watched Bernie Sanders, you know, Bernie Sanders started this in the last election, right? Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is the way his message resonated with people surprised a, a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. None more so than him, I'm sure. <laughs> but it, it was clear that he probably would have won against Trump. Uh, if they hadn't run Hillary, 
I suspect he would have won, although that would have been more an anti-Trump vote than a pro-Bernie vote, or certainly the anti-Trump component of that would have been what tipped him over the edge. But what's worrying to me is because that message resonated so strongly with people, this time around, there are people that have seen that and said, well, he didn't quite make it, so I'm going to do what he said, only more so. Mm-hmm. So you've seen AOC and the Real New Deal. You've, st- you've had this UBI, Universal Basic Income, is now being talked about everywhere. And now up in the ante even more is Liz Warren with the wealth tax. And so it becomes... Do they go too far to the point? Uh, it's can, possible. Can they go too it's far? It's possible. It's possible they could. But unfortunately, if you, if you look back through history, socialism is something that doesn't really get disproved until it's tried. It seems like a great idea, right? Until they do it, and it's it's never worked. It, it just hasn't worked, and it doesn't work, and it won't work. And it, it might seem like a great alternative initially, but over time, it isn't the answer. The, the answer is to fix capitalism. The answer to fix capitalism is is to allow companies to go bankrupt, just to withdraw the the state as a, an artificial prop to asset You're prices. You're talking about the Fed right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I guess that... The well, and the government, right, with tax cuts and all this stuff they're doing to extend... Uh, the longest expansion in history is unnecessary because you're just building the problems up for a line down the road. But meanwhile, the Fed is saying in the next crisis, we're prepared to go further. They're of not. Course, of course they are. And, and if you're, I mean, if you're, if, forget being where you, who you are as an American or what you stand in politically, if you're an investor, you have to be thinking, this is great. They tell you that every time something goes wrong, they're going to step in. I mean, to me, the easiest trade for the next five years is buy every 20% market dip in the U.S. because they're going to come charging in. Look, it, it, and that might be right. That might be right. But but there's one problem with that scenario, and that is the recession scenario, right? If the US goes into recession, all bets are off. Because I, I think no matter what the Fed do, they will come out and they will be forced to do something, and it'll be drastic. But you know, we've seen negative interest rates in Europe. You know, I, I think US government bonds, the yields on those are going to go lower than people dare dream about. Uh, at the moment, because that's where they're going to have to try and send them. But I think the imbalance is built up in this mean that if we do get a recession, like a real recession, then I think the Fed are going to be really, really in a tight situation. And they'll throw everything at it. They'll they'll buy equities. Um, they'll buy more bonds. They'll buy they'll buy everything that's for sale. Frankly, mm-hmm. but I don't think against the backdrop of a recession, it's it's going to work because right now. You can still say that companies are making profit, the S&Ps, we've got the buyback scenario. It's going to be really difficult to get buyback past your shareholders in a recession. So there's going to be a lot of props to this market that if the economy is is demonstrably weakening, then just buying equities because you think they're going up is, I think, will we'll jive with what Felix said about the end of passive. And that will be the moment where it does become important to have active managers who can market time. Grant, uh, we could do this for a long time, but you have a, a pool date waiting. So I'm gonna, <laughs> we'll wrap it up. And I want to thank you for spending the time and hope to see you in Seattle soon. I, I can't wait. Okay, thanks. Thanks.